You may be seated. Good evening. Glad you're here tonight. I know we have several families on vacation. They have excused absences, if you will, but I sure am glad that you have made it tonight. Quite a torrential rainfall we just had. Some of you were caught up into that as well. Well, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to the book of Ephesians, and the title of this series is God and Grace. And chapter 1 and chapter 2 is just screaming exactly that, the grace of God. What is the grace of God? Who are we as humans? What do we deserve? We deserve the punishment of God for all of sin and falling short of the glory of God. But yet he gives us grace. And it is not due to works. It is not due to anything that we have done. It's not due to anything that we will do. God doesn't look and choose only the best of us. But like Paul, who wrote the book of Ephesians, uh, sometimes it looks like he chooses the worst of us to show his grace because it is totally unmerited. Paul was ravaging the church, persecuting Christians when he was radically transformed, radically saved by the grace of God. So we looked at chapter 1 and we introduced a a Latin phrase there, sola deo gloria. We'll talk more about that during the discipleship time tonight. But basically that all the glory for our salvation goes to God. Uh, We do not get the glory for our salvation. It's 100% Him. As we looked at chapter 1 from the very beginning of our salvation, uh, He will see us all the way through the end of our salvation, which is glorification. We looked at, uh, for instance, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13. In him, speaking of Jesus, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Again, he gets the glory for all of our salvation. It is by grace that we have been saved. There's nothing we bring to the table and say, God, look at what I've done. Look at this, look at this, look at this. You definitely need to save me now. We don't get God's attention by living a good life. And then he says, yep, that one's better than the others. I'm going to choose him. But yet we give him all the glory for our salvation. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2, the first part here. As we looked at last week, just trying to review quickly to catch us up. But last week we looked at just how bad off we are spiritually. We are not good people uh, that need Jesus to make us a little bit better. But we're actually spiritually dead. Chapter 2 verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses Uh, and sins in which you once walked. He describes us there and in the following verses as being absolutely spiritually dead. There is nothing we can do as spiritually dead to come alive spiritually, that we need to be reborn. We need a new birth, and that can only come by the grace of God from God, and that's what we need. But he says here, you were absolutely spiritually dead. We talked about the fact of how Far can a dead man move? You know, not far at all. If you put the cure next to him, can he reach out and get it? Absolutely not. It can do nothing. And so it is with our salvation. We don't contribute to it. We don't muster enough energy in ourselves to reach out for something because we're spiritually dead. It says we're spiritually dead. We're, we're, we're sinning like the rest of the world. We're following the course of this world, chapter 2, verse 2 says. And we were also following Satan. So we were spiritually dead. We were in our sins. We had trespassed against God. We were following the course, the sinful course of this world. And we were following Satan himself. But as we just pointed out earlier, I love this song. 
Brian had for us to sing tonight, one of the most theologically rich songs I've ever seen. Enjoy the lyrics, but God in verse 4. Wow. So we go from sinners being spiritually dead, following the course of this world, following Satan. We are by nature objects of his wrath to all of a sudden verse 4. And again, he's writing to believers here, the believers in Ephesus. He says, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive. So this is the salvation where God gets all the glory. It is by grace that we have been saved. And just in case we think there's something that we have done to perhaps deserve it, to earn it, in verse 8, he says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. Even in chapter 2, verse 8, he contributes all of our salvation to God. So overall, what we've learned so far in chapter 1 and, and the beginning here of chapter 2 is simply that, sola deo gloria. God gets all the glory for our salvation, and all we bring to the table is our sinfulness. That's what we bring. We don't contribute, we just bring our sin. But God has, has saved us from beginning all the way to the end. He gets all the glory for it. We have been rescued, and this is grace. This is unmerited favor from God. We don't deserve it. We don't earn it. And the more you get your mind around grace and away from what you think you might have done to to get saved, to be saved, to earn salvation, all of a sudden it becomes beautiful. I heard uh, Steve Lawson say just this week as I was listening to him, the better one understands that they were spiritually dead, the better grace looks Because truly, if we're spiritually dead and we can do nothing, we're in our sins, but God makes us alive, we owe him all the credit, all the glory, all of it. And it just just comes alive. Grace. This grace is too big. Like, this grace is huge. Someone should write a song about it, like Amazing Grace or something, right? Because it truly is. It's amazing. It's breathtaking. It's mind-boggling to get your mind around who we were, as Paul is saying, but then who God has raised us now to be. It is truly beautiful the more we comprehend His grace. Well, let's get going. Uh, Too long in review tonight. Let's go on on down to chapter 2, verse 11, and we'll get through the second half of chapter 2. Let me just read this, and then we'll go back through it. Chapter 2, verse 11, I'll begin. Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision, by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of grace, of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, another one of these God moments here, he's contrasting, but now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to 
uh, in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Let's pray. God, thank you that for this time together tonight as the body of Christ, as people unified who have been saved, who have been rescued, who have been, been saved by grace. We thank you for that grace. We give you all the glory for our salvation. And I pray, Lord, that our eyes and ears would be open tonight, that our minds and attention would focus in on your word. And may we understand your grace in an even more valuable way tonight, more so than even when we walked in here today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, if we look back at verse 11 and verse 12, uh, Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, uh, having no hope and without God in the world. We'll stop right there. So here we see uh, the Gentiles being contrasted from the Jews. And that's what we're going to see during this section. That at one time, and he's speaking to the Gentiles. Who are the Gentiles he's speaking to? Those that are now in Ephesus, the church of Ephesus. He is saying that they were at one time separated from the commonwealth of Israel. Now if we know our Old Testament, which very... In uh, modern days, they say very few people actually know their Old Testament much any longer because it's not even referenced that often. But it's very good to understand the New Testament is very connected to the Old Testament and to see it as one whole. But we see here what is being described. He's going way back to the covenant that was made with Abraham. And then, of course, Abraham has two sons. And, and it is not Ishmael, but it is Isaac. Uh, who God made, reaffirms the covenant with. Isaac has two sons, Jacob and Esau, right? And, but, but God chooses Jacob to, to reestablish this covenant in. And then his children, remember, uh, Joseph goes off to Egypt um, and, and all the famine that takes place. Eventually he gets his father and all the brothers to come there as well. And this becomes the nation of Israel. These become the, the Jewish people, all right? Everyone else in the world is, of course, non-Jew. So Jewish people were not just a religion, oftentimes like we think of it now, you know, are you Christian, or are you Buddhist, or are you Jewish? Uh, but these were actually genetically Jewish people, that God had made this covenant with Abraham, he had made it with Isaac, he had made it with Jacob, he had made it with his chosen people, the nation of Israel. So the Gentiles here, he is saying, are not, were not a part of this. The Jews, they received the covenant from God. They had Moses. They had the Ten Commandments, right? They had the temple. They had the direct revelation from God through prophets as well. The Gentiles did not. There is indeed an extreme special relationship there with Israel that we see, uh, particularly in the Old Testament. Now, 
This sign that was given here in verse 11, this physical sign, was given to Abraham. Genesis 17, if you want to look at it later, I know some of you take notes. But in Genesis 17, God said, this is going to be the sign. This is going to be the symbol that I have separated a group out for me. And that you are to live holy lives and that you are my people. And this process, this physical symbol, was supposed to be done to every male on the eighth day. In Genesis 17, I'll just read the last portion here of verse 14. It says, if it was not done, then they had broken God's commandment and they should be cut off from his people. So it was extremely, extremely important. So as we see this in the Old Testament light, he is describing two people here, the Gentiles and the non-circumcised and the in the Jews, the circumcision group, all right? So we see that in the Old Testament. He's carrying this through to show that they were separate, they were different, but now something amazing has happened. Turn with me, hold your place there, but turn to Acts chapter 11. So can Gentiles be saved? And this is huge. It's hard to get our mind around how big of a deal this is, that Gentiles are now being welcomed in to the body of Christ, that Gentiles can be saved? I mean, the question on everyone's mind of the Jewish nation is, surely Gentiles can't be saved. I mean, right? They're they're not genetically connected to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. They're not of the 12 tribes of Israel, and this is who God has, has been dealing with. Can they actually be saved? Uh, so what happens? We see this in Acts chapter 11. I'm going to read verse 1 through 3 and pick up at 15. Just kind of give you a quick summary of what's going on here. Verse 1, Acts 11. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him. All right, we keep that in context. We know who that is now. Saying, you went to the uncircumcised men and ate with them? As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just... Sorry, I've skipped to verse 15. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I, that I could stand in God's way. When they heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. Wow! This was such a new concept for them, all right? Uh, He is getting made fun of here. They're saying, what are you doing? You should not be with them. You should not even go around them. If you remember some of the Pharisees' laws, If they had gone through, they were supposed to avoid a Gentile country, if at all possible. But oftentimes we see Jesus going directly to these areas that are full of Gentiles. But they were supposed to avoid those areas, if at all possible. If they were out amongst Gentiles, non-Jews, or crossed over into a Gentile nation, they had put all these rules and rituals in place where they were supposed to wash. And it was symbolically uh, removing the sin and the filth of these other people because they were the chosen people of God, all right? So now he is going to them. He is presenting the Messiah, the Jewish Messiah, right? The Jewish Christ. This is the way we're supposed to be saved 
to the Gentiles? And what, what is going to happen? Well, we find out the Holy Spirit falls upon them. In verse 15 through 18, we see it falls on them just as it did to the Jews. And look at verse 18, Acts chapter 11. When they heard these things, they fell silent. They were totally blown away. This was a whole new concept for them. That their Messiah, their Christ, their method of salvation was not just theirs, but this was a bigger picture. This was a bigger scheme that people all around the world, all over the world, it didn't matter their genetics, but anyone could be saved through this message. God had to give them proof, and he gave them the exact same proof that he gave in the early portion there of Acts. On the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit fell upon them, and they were able to witness that this is indeed supernatural. They fell silent, and then they just glorified God. And they said at the end of Verse 18, then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. Now this was a common view before Christ had come that, that God only dealt with the Jews. And, and actually we see in the Old Testament, though primarily uh, it is not 100%. All right? We do have uh, Gentiles coming into the faith and believing in God. We even have uh, within Jesus' own genetics, right? We have uh, Ruth uh, also, who was not a Jewish individual, but was a Gentile. So we, we see people coming in, but indeed, primarily, it was were the Jews. But now, Christ has now come. Salvation is opened up to all people of all kinds. Uh, but now, still, the Jews, this argument will come up cyclically. Like, okay, it's the same Christ, all right? We get that. But we're still a little bit different. We're still a little bit better than the rest of everyone else. So Paul's point in writing this portion of Ephesians is to kind of put the Jews in their place and also put the Gentiles in their place. And that place is the same place. It's the exact same. And that's what he's saying here. We are all one. That there's no longer Jews and there's no longer Gentiles and, and Jews don't have all this and the Jews have nothing. But we're all in the exact same place. So it's kind of like he's bringing the Jews down, putting them here. He's bringing the Gentiles over here and putting them all in one. And this is the point of tonight's message. This is the point that Paul is getting across here as well. Now this would come up multiple times. Galatians chapter 2, if you can, we're done with Acts. Flip over to Galatians chapter 2, verse 11. Hold your place in Ephesians. We'll be returning there quickly. But just to show you a little bit, and we know this, we've studied Galatians not too long ago, but we see it coming up again. Now, Peter had gone to the Gentiles. Peter, remember, had the vision from heaven and, and, the, and the food coming down and, and the voice saying, eat, eat it all. And there's nothing unclean anymore. Then he goes to Cornelius' house and he's a, he witnesses to a Gentile, and the Gentile is saved. His whole family is saved. So he knows better than this. But still this argument and this pressure comes back around the circumcision group, the non-circumcision group, those that, that uphold the traditions of the Jewish religion, and, and now these Gentiles, and, and which one is Peter, and what, how does he fit into all of this? And in Galatians chapter 2, we see that even though Peter knew better, once again, he kind of fell victim to the peer pressure and thought of himself above and better than the Gentiles. And what does Paul do? Uh, if you know about Paul, he's not very timid, right? Verse 11, Galatians chapter 2. But when Cephas, or Peter, came to Antioch, 
I opposed him to his face. I just love the way that is written. It comes across so, so, so angry, right? It's just, this is Paul. I opposed him to his face. He didn't write a letter. He didn't send a text. He didn't post it on Facebook, you know, and hit, hit everybody except the person he was aiming at. But he went directly to the person who was in the wrong here. He went directly to what is considered the main apostle, and he went to his face. Why? Because he stood condemned. He was in sin. He was in serious doctrinal error. Verse 12, For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, Peter, before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? This behavior was unacceptable. It was out of step with the gospel, and that's why Paul posed him to his face. This gospel, one direction to God, one way to God, it is Jesus. But he's not just the Savior, the Messiah, the Christ, the sacrifice, the priest for the nation of Israel, and that's it. But it is to everyone. Peter knew this. He knew it extremely well, so Paul called him out to his face Because he was in an error in doctrine, all right? He was misrepresenting the gospel. He was there preaching the gospel to the Gentiles, saying, Look, we're all the same. There's only one Savior, and now we're all the same. But then his Jewish buddies showed up, and he pulled back away. He's like, Hey, you know, y'all keep eating there. I'm going to go eat at this table over here. And, And he removed himself from their presence because he felt the pressure of them and how they looked at him and how they viewed Jews and Gentiles and how they were going to view him now as well. So he was opposed by Paul. Stay there, uh, Galatians two fifteen through 16. Paul says, but when he who had set me apart before I was born, beautiful here, all right, before he was even born, uh, this is all in the plan of God. We looked at this last week in chapter 2, that not only our salvation uh, our, our salvation, but also our works as well, the good works that he has prepared for us in advance. Here Paul gives credence to that. He says, But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him amongst the Gentiles. And we see this worked out here, what we looked at last week, that God rescues him, God saves him by giving him belief uh, and and faith in Jesus Christ and that even his life and the works, God had planned, orchestrated this for him to go to the Gentiles and this is exactly what he had been doing. All right, let's continue back to Ephesians. Flip back there if you don't mind. Now that we kind of see what is going on and we kind of see the need for this issue being addressed, that there is no longer Jew, there is no longer Gentile, but that we are indeed all children of God and that we are actually all seed of Abraham. We are all Abraham's children. It goes back to the song, right? Father Abraham had many sons. I am one of them and so are you. And it doesn't have to do with which nation of Israel, which, which tribe of Israel you can trace your lineage back to. It goes to the Savior that you can trace your belief, your faith your trust in, back to, that unites every single one of us. I believe we're on verse 13 in Ephesians chapter 2. But now, 
in Christ Jesus, you who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. We'll pause right there. Uh, They had been far away from God. If you even go way back to uh, the tabernacle itself and think in those terms, the the tabernacle was built. Uh, Moses builds the tabernacle by the directions from God, and the, the high priests are there, the Levites take care of it, and then there is more and more distance. The tribes are further out, but then the Gentiles are even further away. Gentiles cannot come into the tabernacle. They, of course, cannot go sacrifice an animal before God. And even, even of the Jews, only the high priest could, but the Gentiles can't even be allowed anywhere near there. This is, these are God's people, God's chosen people, and everyone else is removed. As we Fast forward that even to what's called Herod's temple, the time of Jesus. Uh, we see this as well. We see that the Gentiles could not go near the temple, that they had a place, they had a wall that separated them from the actual temple that was there, and that this wall was there, and if they dared cross that wall, that they could actually be put to death. And just to kind of jar your memory a little bit, You may not recall this, but in Acts 21, we see that this is actually why Paul is arrested and remains in prison for much of his life. I'm just going to read this one to you. I believe I have it on the screen behind me here. Acts 21, verse 28. I'm going to read 27 as well. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, speaking of Paul, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him. Why? This is what they said. Crying out, men of Israel, help. This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law in this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks or Gentiles, right, into the temple and has defiled this holy place. And that is what they did. They seized Paul. They drug him out. He ended up being arrested because of this. Because what had he done? He'd done nothing wrong, and actually there's no proof that he even did this, but he was associated with Gentiles, and Gentiles were usually with him, but they said that he brought Gentiles beyond the wall into the temple part that only the Jews could be in. So needless to say, the Gentiles were seen as far apart. They could not come near the temple of God. But here in verse 13, what has made the difference, this is huge, but now... In Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. What has brought them near uh, to God now? It is the blood of Christ. If we recall the Old Testament, Day of Atonement, it is the blood that gets the high priest near to the presence of God. And, of course, we know that when John the Baptist introduces Jesus, the great, uh, the great messenger that would come before the Messiah, he announces him, the Agnes Day. He says, the next day John the Baptist saw him coming, and he announces him, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. And it is that through his blood, the Lamb's blood, that God has provided, that all of us, not the world, not just the Jews now, But now it can be 
someone from another country, someone from another nation, someone totally unrelated to Abraham, he takes away the sin of the world from believers from all around the world. That sin is now removed. So it is the blood of Jesus, faith in Jesus Christ, his death, his resurrection, his payment for our sins that unifies us, that brings us to God. Verse 14, let's see. For he himself is our peace and who has made us both one and has broken down in the flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Now, this is, a, this is huge. We'll begin with the first part of verse 14 here. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. That, that he is our peace. Look closely at verse 14. Paul, being a Jew, writing to Gentiles, but what does he do here? Does he exclude himself or include himself in that sentence? He includes himself with them, right? He says, he is not my peace or your peace, but he is, he is our peace. And the only way that we can have peace with God is if someone has paid the price for our sins. Because just earlier, remember chapter 2, he says, we are by nature objects of God's wrath. The wrath is the opposite of peace. How can we be made at peace with God? Through the blood of Jesus Christ. He is our peace. The first thing he begins to announce as he rises from the dead, he comes back to his disciples and says, Peace to you. How can he say such a thing? Because he just made it. He is the only one that could make peace with God. He's the only one that could pay for our sins. So this peace is there now. But also underlying in this verse 14, he is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. So the point of this is that he is our peace. He is the only way that we can have peace with God. He breaks down the wall of hostility that is between us and God, but also this now breaks down the hostility that is between man and that no longer should there be this wall that separates from worshiping God, but now this wall is torn down. And that now we all come to God on equal footing. We all come to God the direct same path. The only way to him is through Jesus Christ. So this hostility between us and God is not broken down. But also this should unify believers from all walks of life. Uh, different colors of skin. Different socioeconomic backgrounds. All right, like You can have an Arkansan up here and a Texan out there. And we still have something in common. The greater thing that we have in common is Christ the same Savior, and how this unifies us into one body. Uh, how should we treat believers who are different uh, than us is a question that is asked and a question that was being asked at that time as well. Uh, and his point is that we now have in common, what we have in common now, should be so great that it supersedes our differences. Meditate on that just for a moment and think that through. So what does this mean now? How should we treat believers who are different than us? Uh, we treat them as a part of the body of Christ. Recognizing, uh, as Paul gives the analogy, that an arm may not look like a leg, right? And a finger may not look like an elbow. But we are all part of the exact same body. We're all part of the body of Christ. So we have this in common, and it supersedes everything else. You may be at church, and you may be in a church, maybe here with someone you might not hang out with a lot. Uh, otherwise, if you only look at what you have in common, well, they like this, and I like that, and the, so we're not going to hang out. But in Christ, you really have everything in common. 
because it supersedes everything else. All right? So that is the point he is making here. It's a great point for us to make as well tonight. Uh, this wall of hostility, if we go back to the Old Testament, we, of course, remember the veil that separated uh, people from the presence of God. And what happens as Jesus dies on the cross? We see this veil being torn down. And now we have direct access to God. So this veil, this wall of hostility has now been torn down because that, that curtain that represented God on one side, man on one side, represented Jesus Christ himself. As he dies on the cross... He is that curtain. He is the one that is man. He is the one that is God. And that veil is now torn in half. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Hebrews chapter 10, 19 through 20. I have it on the screen. It says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus... By the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Again, we can have peace with God. A person who is by by grace, by faith, uh, trusted in Christ and Christ alone for their salvation, it has peace with God, that we have direct access to Him. We can pray, we can talk to Him anytime we want to. We also live this life knowing we're in a right relationship with God. So we have no fear of death. Uh, we know that when we stand before God, He's not going to judge us and weigh out the good, weigh out the bad. Should He get to come to heaven or should He not? Because peace. We now have peace with God. Our sins have been paid for on the cross by Jesus Christ. So this is what unifies us. Let's carry on to verse 15. Uh, by abol- verse 14 and 15, I'll read together. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Verse 15. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. All right, now we know, and Jesus has refer- made mention of this multiple times in his life, that he came to fulfill the law. And indeed, he fulfills it perfectly. Adam, our first representative, of course, did not fulfill the law. He failed. Uh, Israel failed. All the patriarchs, uh, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all these great men, Joseph, uh, Moses, no, anyone you can think. We have all failed. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. We need someone who is better than all of us. Who is that? That is Jesus, who is God and man, who is absolutely sinless, represents us perfectly. He fulfills the law perfectly. Perfectly. Now, verse 15 says, By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. Now, the point he is making here is that the law is no longer threatening us because Christ represented us perfectly and he fulfilled the law. So what, what makes us an object of his wrath, what makes us have this wall of hostility between us and God is sin. We have broken God's law. But Jesus comes and he abolishes that wall by living perfectly, by never sinning. And when we are saved, we get his record, right? That's the beautiful thing about the gospel is that we are actually saved from our sin and we get his righteousness. So now this wall has been torn down. 
and we have full access to God himself. So it's beautiful. He's painting the picture here of the salvation and the great benefits that we have of it. So the, the Gentiles that he is writing to here are still wondering, uh, should we perhaps be trying to get into the temple? Uh, then we're not allowed there. We're still, this wall is there and we can't go there or it's going to be death. Even as the temple is destroyed, uh, 67 and 70 A.D., and during this time period that the Jewish temple was destroyed, the historian Josephus writes that the wall was still up. And there were signs still placarded up that if you, as a Gentile, enter in here, your death is, is uh, because of you. That you will die and your death is your fault because you've gone where only the Jews are supposed to go. But Paul is saying here, don't worry about that temple. Same thing that was being said in Hebrews, right? Don't worry about that temple. That thing is done. That thing is dead. The curtain was ripped and they quickly tried to sew it back together to make it look like something was really there. Like the Wizard of Oz and the man behind the curtain, right? He's exposed and then he tries to cover himself up. No, no, no. It's still this superpower behind here. No, the temple is done. The temple is gone. Forget about that. I'm telling you, Paul is saying here that this wall of hostility between you and God is gone. Forget about that earthly temple over there in Jerusalem. The temple we're talking about now is the presence of God and you have full access to it because Jesus has paid the price for your sins. All right, verse 15, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself. Here we go. One new man in the place of two, so making peace. Again, he starts off here with two groups. But he says, now we are one. We are one in Christ. Paul was writing to Gentiles who still had lots of inferiority issues to overcome. The Gentiles had been taught that they were beneath the Jews. They could not eat with them. They could not go near them. They were supposed to go to the other side of the road, avoid them if at all possible, because they were Jews and they were Gentiles. But, but now they were to be seen as one. On equal footing, saved exactly the same, one body, one set of believers. Believers now, Jews or Gentiles, were to be seen as one. Verse 16, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So it is Jews who are saved through Christ. There are Gentiles who are saved. How can they be saved? Through this exact same Christ. That this is not only the Jewish Messiah, but this is the Messiah for the whole world. That all who believe in him, all who have faith in him, shall be saved. This word reconciliation here, verse 16, we don't want to pass that up. Deep word, great word to just reflect on just for a moment. But here we have reconciliation. Uh, Two parties who were enemies who are now at peace. Remember, we were by nature objects of God's wrath, spiritually dead. We followed sin. We followed the course of this world. We followed Satan. We, we deserve the judgment of God, but now we have been reconciled to God. Well, what did we do? How on earth, what did we bring to the table? What did we do to come to God and say, God, look at this. Let's, I'm going to give you this, and now the relationship is fixed, right? Well, the point of it is here is it's not what we did, but it's what God did. On the cross, we are saved from God, by God, through God, Jesus Christ on the cross. And it is all of God, all of this is to God's glory. So it is this reconciliation. Two parties are now at peace. Why? Verse 16, because of the body through the cross 
thereby killing the hostility. That Jesus takes what we deserved. He pays the price for it. And now there is peace. God no longer sees us as objects of his wrath. He has made peace. And now we have been reconciled to him. Uh, If we are enemies of God, by nature, objects of his wrath, and how can this relationship be reconciled? Uh, This is truly the beauty of the gospel, that we have offended God. We can do nothing to fix the relationship, uh, but yet he fixes it for us. Through the cross, he killed the hostility that was owed to us by placing it on Jesus Christ. Verse 17, And he came and preached peace to you who are far off, and peace to those who who were near. Uh, We've already basically covered this, but who are the children of God now? If we look at Galatians chapter 3, verse 29, and if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. The point that he is making over here in Galatians, the point he is making here in verse 17, is that whether you were far off Gentiles, or whether you were the Pharisees, Sadducees, those who are right there, the teachers of the law, the scribes, the salvation can only be accomplished by the exact same thing through Jesus Christ. And only by faith in Him can we be saved. And he makes the point here that now in, in Christ, we are all the same. Over in Galatians, he even takes a little bit further to say, hey, doesn't matter your genetic makeup, all that matters now is, is your faith in Jesus Christ. And if it is, then you are children, you're a child of Abraham. Remember, let me read verse 18 and through 22 and we'll wrap up. For through whom, through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God. Uh, We could spend much more time on that. Of course, we don't have enough time tonight. But if you can, look behind me on the screen. Let me summarize this last portion here. That we are all one in Christ. That is the point he is making here. That's the point he's wrapping up here at the end of chapter 2. We have the exact same spirit. All of us, Jew, Gentile, whoever it is. uh, We have the exact same spirit, the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 1, 14 says... Having believed, you're marked in God with a promised Holy Spirit, right? It's the exact same Spirit. Same citizenship in verse 19 of the exact same city. Uh, this is not our dwelling place. Arkansas, Texas, Oklahoma, uh, Yugoslavia, wherever you're at, we are not true citizens on this planet. We are just passers through, but our citizenship is in heaven, Jew or Gentile, no matter where you're from. Uh, same exact apostles and prophets. So he's writing here to the Gentiles. And, you know, they don't, didn't have the apostles. They didn't have, they didn't have the prophets, per se. And, and Paul is saying here, we are, I am. Paul is saying, you're apostle. We are all your apostles. And all the prophets are yours as well. Because we're all linked together now. We have the same, we're members of the exact same household. No longer Jews there and Gentiles there, but one household of God. Uh, same building as well. What God is putting together here, 
And we're a part of the same exact building. We have the same Christ. He is the chief cornerstone. The cornerstone was set, bringing two walls together at a right angle. Is the most important stone in the construction process, and we share that stone. We are all being built together. We are living stones, as Peter says, that God is putting together to build what he wants to build. So we are one in Christ. Uh, let me end with this. Why should this, would this be important to the Gentiles in Ephesus? Because they were the ones far off, right? And now this is, this is a beautiful letter that's written to them saying, hey, don't feel like you're subpar. Don't, don't, don't worry. You're now one in Christ. And uh, why would this information be important to us? Because by the looks of things, we are Gentiles. We are in the same boat as those in Ephesus. We were objects of his wrath. We were those who were far away. We were ones who did not have the covenant, didn't have, didn't have Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But now we do. And we are linked all together by faith in Jesus Christ. We are made one. Let's pray. God, thank you for making us one in Christ. Thank you that Christ has reconciled us to you. He has made peace uh, with you by dying on the cross for our sins. The wall of hostility that separated us has now come down, not only between you and us, but God, I pray that it comes down continuously between us and other people that are around us as well. May we not allow any wall of hostility to come up. It is a beautiful thing to study your grace and your mercy. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy. And we thank you that all who trust in Jesus Christ can be saved. It is only by his blood that we can get to heaven. It is only by his blood that our sins can be forgiven. And we can know that our sins have been forgiven. That we can live indeed with peace with you throughout this life. And we praise you for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and worship him. Thank you.